Did you know that sex is God's idea? Nothing dirty about it at all. It's God's idea. It's God who gave us human beings this sex drive that we all have. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says this about us, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Say it with me, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Later on in verse 31, the Bible says, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was... Very good. Very good. So I want us to understand as we begin this discussion about adultery that there's nothing dirty in and of itself regarding sex. It's a, it's a benefit. It's a blessing from God to us. Sex, this distinction between male and female, this, this, this reproductive process, and all the pleasures associated with sex, it's all good. As a matter of fact, God looks at it and says it's very good. Sex is part of this good world that God has created for us to use and to enjoy, but sex, and here's, here's a caveat here, sex, like everything else, has to be controlled in order to be fully enjoyed. For instance, for instance, God gives us water, and He gives us thirst, and I don't know about you, but there's nothing that makes me feel better when I'm thirsty than a nice, cold glass of water, so I love water. It feels good wetting my throat, going down, and rehydrating my body. But too much water, and what happens? You drown. God gave us fire. I love a fire. That bonfire we had last weekend was a blast. And it was cold. How many of you enjoyed sitting around that fire and getting a little heat from it? Fire is a wonderful gift from God. It keeps us warm when the nights are cold, but fire uncontrolled does what? Burns, destroys. If that fire had gotten out of control, it could have been a mess. In the same way, sex is a gift from God. It's a gift from God, and sex, when it's properly controlled and expressed within marriage as God intends, it's a very good thing. But outside of marriage, outside the design of God, sex damages and devastates human beings and human relationships. And I, I, th I think we can all agree, I would imagine that most of us in this room, in some way, have been touched by the damage and devastation that happens when someone commits adultery, when someone violates their marriage covenant, when someone has sex outside of marriage, I imagine most of us in this room have either experienced the pain of that firsthand or we have had close family members or friends and we have watched them and walked with them through the devastation that happened in their life when they committed sex outside of marriage. Some of us are still struggling with the consequences of it. Come on, let's get honest, right? God calls it adultery. Sex outside of marriage, God calls it adultery. The seventh commandment simply says in Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. But before we get into this commandment, what I want to do, before we get into describing for you, explaining to you what it means and how it applies to us today and getting, I hope, really relevant and practical with you today, I want us to read all ten of these commandments together to refresh our memory 
Again, I'd encourage you to get the, uh, the other messages that I've preached thus far to kind of get the full gist of what God is trying to do here among us at Christian Life Fellowship. But read these with me if you would. They should be on the screen above my head. Who spoke all these words? And God spoke all these words. Now say them with me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Let's pray. God, we ask you today to open up our hearts to your truth. I would imagine that most everyone in this room has experienced the pain and the heartache that comes with adultery. Maybe they've experienced it firsthand. Maybe they've grown up in a family that was racked by it, wrecked by it. Maybe they're walking now through the pain and the struggle of it. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus today, you would help us see the practicality of this word, and you would help us to put this truth into practice in our lives that we can avoid the damage and devastation that comes from violating this commandment. It's not your intention to harm us or hurt us or to steal the joy out of our lives for these commandments. It's your intention to bless us and to protect us as we commit ourselves to living our lives as you say we should. Help us, O oh God, to see today that your word is a blessed thing, a good thing, a trustworthy thing. And help us to commit ourselves to living our lives according to your word that we might experience the blessing that flows from it. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is adultery exactly? What is adultery? The dictionary defines adultery this way. Voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than his or her lawful spouse. Now on the surface, adultery seems to be simply a physical act that violates a person's marriage vows. And God says quite simply, quite succinctly, you shall not commit adultery. Say it with me. You shall not commit adultery. Now, the purpose behind this commandment, if you were to step away just from those few words, the purpose behind the commandment is so much bigger than that. And here it is in a nutshell. The purpose behind this commandment is to guard the sanctity of your marriage relationships. Hebrews 13 goes on to say later, give honor to marriage. Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Now, why, I, that brings up the next question. Why does God feel so strongly about adultery? Why, is he, why does He make such a strong stand against it? I'll tell you why. It seems self-evident to me. Because nothing good ever comes from it. No family is ever made stronger because of it. No marriage is ever made healthier because of adultery. Do you know of a marriage that's been made better because they're... 
It hurts. It cuts. It damages. It wrecks. It tears up. It destroys. There's nothing good about it. No family has been made happier because the mom or the dad committed adultery. Adultery, we know it, we feel it. Most of us have been there in some way. Adultery wrecks homes, it ruins lives, and it destroys family. But let me stop to say this. To say that marriage, or excuse me, to say that adultery is only confined to a physical act misses the point entirely. To say that adultery is just about a physical act misses the point entirely. Jesus says, let's go, let's go to the man himself. Jesus says this in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that the law of Moses says do not commit adultery. But I say, I say, Jesus, how many of you are Jesus followers? Are you a Jesus follower? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Here's what Jesus says. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you see, in the eyes of God, listen very carefully, in the eyes of God, adultery is more a matter of the heart than of the body. Adultery is more of an attitude than an action. It's possible for a person to commit adultery without ever physically touching anybody else. It's possible for a person to violate their marriage vows without ever sleeping around. Let's get this straight, guys. Like all other sins, like all other sins, adultery begins in the heart. It begins in our heart. In our hearts, it begins in our thought life. James 1, 14 and 15 says, Temptation comes from the lure of our own evil desires. And these evil desires lead to evil actions. And evil actions lead to death. Adultery begins on the inside, in our inner man, as lust. And it eventually works its way out until it becomes a behavior or an action on our part. Which leads then, of course, to the devastation and destruction that those actions bring. Listen, people don't just fall into adultery. Harvey Weinstein didn't just fall into adultery. I mean, I, I can't think of a more timely topic to talk about than this one today. With all that has been going on the last few weeks, all the lives and the careers and the families that have been wrecked over the last few weeks, I can't think of a more timely topic than this. And to me, and I'm, I'm going on a rabbit trail here, I, got, I just got to tell you this. It's so ironic to me that Hugh Hefner, who was the Pied Piper of the sexual movement back in the 60s and 70s. He's the one, he's the big advocate for, you know, sexual freedom and sexual expression. When Hugh Hefner died, suddenly the scab comes off and all the pus comes out. And now we see that those who have been dancing to his tune now suddenly are being exposed for who they are. Those in Hollywood who have been telling us how we should live. Now we're seeing how they live. And I don't know about you, it makes me sick to my stomach. I can't think of a more timely topic than this because we as the people of God should be different. 
unfortunately, too much of the world has crept into the church, and now we find these kinds of attitudes and behaviors going on even inside rooms like this one. Sexual harassment. I mean, oh man, I could go off. I need to stop. I need to stop because I want to focus on us today. We, I can't do anything about them out there. All I can do is guard my own heart and life and maybe help you understand the importance of guarding your life and your heart from the encroachment of this kind of stuff. People don't just fall into adultery. Just like people don't just become drug addicts, do they? People don't just become thieves. People don't just become murderers. It starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. No man is a faithful husband one day and an unfaithful husband the next. There's a process that leads a person from lust in his heart to an adulterer in the flesh. And there's no character in the Bible that best demonstrates how this process works than the man himself, King David. King David. I want to use King David's life to show you how lust begins in the heart and then manifests itself in action and leads to devastation and destruction. King David is maybe the best example of how this grows and how it becomes so hurtful and devastating. You remember King David. You remember King David. He was a little boy shepherd that God turned into the king. You remember King David. He's the little shepherd boy that went up against the giant Goliath and with one, one sure shot off his slingshot brought that giant down. You remember David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. King David, the one that wrote so many of the worship songs found in the book of Psalms, including the 23rd Psalm. You remember that King David. The King David that was referred to in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. That King David. You know who I'm talking about, right? That King David. You remember him. Well, you can heap all the praise you want on King David, and he deserves a lot. But this fact remains that David became an adulterer. How? How did this great man of God cave into lust and become an adulterer? How did that happen? If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I will not put the verses on the, on the wall uh, in their entirety. I did give you the reference. But if you want to know how this process works, in, how it worked in David's life and how it will work in your life too if you're not careful, go with me to 2 Samuel 11. Now I'm going to make another strong assumption in this place. If you're a Jesus follower, there is none of us then that want to follow David down this trail. Right? We want to keep our hearts free from that kind of stuff, right? So let's see how the process worked in David's life so we can get a glimpse into how the enemy, the devil, will work in our lives to take us down that same primrose path. The first step in this process is this, and you find it in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. The, uh, 2 Samuel 11, 1 says, The following spring, the time of year when kings go to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to destroy the Ammonites. In the process, they laid siege to the city of Rabbah, but David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Where was David supposed to be? At war with his soldiers. What did David do? 
He stayed behind. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Now David, at this point in his life, is about 50 years of age. And David has proven himself to be a great warrior and a great king, and he has accomplished just about everything he set out to do. David's got nothing left to prove, and maybe he felt at this point in his life he ought to rest on his laurels and let somebody else do all the dirty work. So David stayed behind. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Let me tell you something. David was an accident waiting to happen. He's alone. He's the king. And it's good to be king. And he's accountable to no one. They say that the devil finds work for idle hands. And in this case, the devil didn't have to try very hard. David was just sitting around taking it easy when he should have been with his army. He should have been fighting side by side with his men. But instead, David just stayed busy doing nothing. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Guys, let me tell you something. Much of the struggle we have with lust comes when we're not where we're supposed to be. A lot of the struggle that we have with lust comes from not doing what we're supposed to do. Step one in that process. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. Step two in the process. David looked at something he shouldn't have ever seen. David looked at something he shouldn't have seen. 2 Samuel 11.2 says, Late one afternoon, David got out of bed after taking a nap. <laughs> Man, his men are on the front lines fighting. What David, what's David doing? Taking a nap. David got out of bed after taking a nap and went for a stroll on the roof of the palace. And he looked out over the city. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, if David had been with his army, he wouldn't have taken a stroll on the roof. If David hadn't taken a stroll on the roof, he never would have seen this beautiful woman taking a bath. But David looked and he saw something he should never, ever have seen. Now, maybe David said to himself, I need to look away. Or maybe David even turned his head and walked away. But no one else was around. No one was there to hold him accountable. And it's a beautiful night. Nobody else has to know. It's just me. And I'm the king. I'm the king. And, I, oh, heck, I deserve a little peek. So David looks again. And that second look, you got him hooked. That kind of rhymed. I like that. That second look. Look, listen, listen. This is the serious part. The roots of lust grow deeper when we look at something we should not see. The roots of lust will grow when you continue to look at something you should not see. So the story moves on to the next level. And we see that the process of David's fall into adultery continues. The third step in this process, David asked a question he never should have asked. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. He looked at something he shouldn't have seen, and then he asked a question he should never have asked. In verse 3 of chapter 11, it says, He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Does anybody know who Uriah was? One of David's soldiers, one of David's mighty men. Where was Uriah? 
He was where he was supposed to be. David asked a question he never should have asked. Now, on the surface, who is she? I mean, that seems to be an innocent question, doesn't it? Who is she? But at this point, David's, and at this point, David's lust for Bathsheba, it's still covered up. It's still hidden. There's been no physical contact yet. There's been no adultery in a bodily sense, in a physical sense, in a technical sense. Adultery hadn't yet taken place. So outwardly, nothing wrong had yet occurred. But can I tell you what was already going on in David's heart? What do you think was already going on in David's heart? Oh my goodness, here he goes. David's mind and imagination, man, they're just flying. They're hard at work. And in his imagination, David is running through all kinds of scenarios involving himself and Bathsheba. In his mind, the deed has already been done. In his heart, David and Bathsheba have already committed adultery. Now, can't, can't you just hear all David's reasons why this affair might be a really good idea? Aren't we good at justifying ourselves? We're really good at it. I mean, I can rationalize all my sinful behavior. Just give me an opportunity. I can just hear David. I'm alone. I'm so lonely. And you know what? She's probably lonely too. After all, God just wants me to be happy. Doesn't he want me to be happy? God wants me to be And she'd make me happy. Happy, happy, happy. <laughs> you know what? I'm sure David, this, this may have passed his mind too. I, you know, I'm in kind of a loveless marriage right now, and I don't think this marriage on men is a good idea. But, hey, obviously God's got a connection here that I need to pursue. They had no physical contact. Hadn't been any physical contact yet. They haven't slept together yet. But David's lust is in full bloom. Listen to me. Listen to me real carefully. I, I've got to point this out because my life, I've had too many good friends in my life who have lost their marriages at this point. Too many pastor friends at this point lost their families, lost their kids, lost their careers, lost their ministries, lost their reputation. At this point, no physical contact, but dude, lust was in full bloom. And it had expressed itself through love notes, texts, Facebook posts. They may as well have gone on ahead and done the dirty deed for all that it mattered at this point. Let's be honest. Too many friends. Oh man, too many friends. I've watched it happen to good, good people. If the devil can get us this far, he's got us. If he gets us this far, we're in his web, and we're not getting out easy. Uh, I, you see, David had already committed adultery with Bathsheba in his heart at this point. He was already tangled up in this web of lust. He'd already broken God's seventh commandment. He'd already committed adultery with her in his heart. And now he's just trying to find a way to make it really happen. So David asked a question he never should have asked. Who is she? Who is she? I want to know more about her. Got to find out where she lives. Got to find out her number. 
But you see, the process of David's failure isn't quite through yet. David's lust for Bathsheba in his heart now leads him into outright sin. Verse 4 says this, Then David sent for her. Then David sent for her. David sought something that he had no right to have. David sought something he had no right to have. David was married. Bathsheba was married. David knows her husband is away. David knows that adultery is wrong, but none of that matters anymore. Now the only thing that matters is for lust to be satisfied. David determined in his heart to get what didn't belong to him. So he sent for Bathsheba. It didn't matter any longer to David what God had said about adultery. The rules no longer applied to him. The consequences no longer mattered to him. To David, it all became about David. David wanted what David wanted regardless of who it hurt, of what the outcome was. It didn't matter anymore because he'd already committed adultery in his heart. You see what Jesus is trying to get at? It's not about the outward action. It's about what's going on in here. In here. So then finally, we see this process of David's fall into adultery reach its ultimate destination. Step number five, David did something he never should have done. David did something he never should have done. Verse four says, then David sent for her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. This whole process started when David wasn't where he was supposed to be, looking at something that he wasn't supposed to see, what started as an accidental look turned into lust. And then lust left unchecked turned into outright adultery. And when she came to the palace, David slept with her. It's easy. Once you've already made up your mind you're going to do it, you're going to do it. But we got, that's only part of the story. Let's get to the rest of the story. Don't you want to know how the story turned out? Most of us probably already do. You see, the story doesn't end there. Bathsheba became pregnant with David's baby. David attempted to cover up the whole affair by lying. Harvey Weinstein before Harvey Weinstein, you know? And then David had Bathsheba's wife or husband Uriah killed in battle. I mean, David's sin destroyed his family. David's sin destroyed her family. David's sin nearly destroyed the nation. If you go and read the story. The consequences of David's adultery far outweighed the pleasure of it. The pleasure lasted for a moment. The devastation lasted a lifetime. Listen. Listen. It always does. It always does. It's amazing how the devil can make sin look so good. The Bible even acknowledges it in Hebrews. The pleasures of sin. It talks about the pleasures of sin being momentary. But we always got to keep in mind the long-term consequences. The pleasure might last for a moment. The pain endures for a lifetime. Ravi Zacharias says it this way. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Can I get an amen? Some of us know that firsthand. David, listen, David didn't wake up that morning wanting to have an affair with Bathsheba. He never intended that to happen. He didn't say by 10 o'clock tonight, I'm going to cheat on my wife and sleep around on her. 
It didn't ha- but that wasn't his plan. But it happened. Because David never took any steps to stop the process. David never took steps, never took action to stop the process. And that's what I really want to bring home today. Listen, the devil works in the very same way on us today. I, again, this weekend had another friend who, because of adultery in her home, has now lost her family, lost her home, has to start life all over again because her husband went out. Listen, enough, enough, enough! Let's not you and me go down that road. I don't want to be sitting in the office with you talking about it, trying to wave red flags at you because you're going down a path that's going to lead to destruction. Let's take care of that right now. Listen, let's get this off the table. Adultery is not for the people of God. It may seem like the right thing at the time, but it's going to take you a place you don't want to go. It's going to cost you more than you ever dreamed possible. Listen, let's just take it. So, when you recognize, do you, you understand how the process works, right? That little five-step process? Okay, now, I want to give you a remedy to snip that process in the bud, okay? I want to give you the remedy. I don't want to sit in my office and cry with you because it happened again. You get what I'm talking about? Enough. Enough damage. Enough devastation. Let's get our lives in order and let God do in us what He wants to do. Let's, with the help of the Holy Spirit, put His plan into practice and let's have healthy relationships in our homes. Amen? Amen. All right, here you go. Here's how the remedy works. Four steps to it. There's a four-step Four or four uh, uh, pieces or parts to this remedy that will help nip this process in the bud. If you will listen to me, there are four things you can do to avoid going down this road that David went down with his, with his family. One, avoid lust-producing situations. Avoid Lust, oh my Lord, and everywhere you look in this culture, there is a lust-producing situation. I mean, my Lord, the Hardee's commercials. You know what I'm talking about? You're watching a sporting event for crying out loud. You're just having a good time with the family. And all of a sudden, some writhing chick gets on there and she's selling hamburgers for crying out loud. How sexy can a hamburger be? I mean, sex sells in this culture. we got to recognize it. This culture is sin-sick, okay? It's going to come at you from the most unexpected places. You have to constantly guard your heart and mind against putting yourself in a lust-producing situation. Now listen, I am not the lust police. I am no lust cop, okay? So I am not going to get specific about what This means to you and your family. That's up to you. You set your standards in your home. You know what those standards ought to be. I know what they are in my home. And those standards have been developed with the help of my wife. Actually, mostly my wife. She's amazing at it. She can tell when things... I mean, there's a sensitivity to her spirit. Let me encourage you, husbands. Listen to your wives in this regard. They see things that you might not see. They have an amazing sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Listen to your helpmate. Men, you, you 
have to know what your limits are. You have to know the limits of your children and what they are. Each of us should know our own limits and we should make up our mind ahead of time, I am going to live within those limits. Each of us know, needs to know where the line is and we need to refuse to cross that line. I will not see this kind of movie. I w Come on. I'm not going to set that for you. I know what it is in my home. But I'm afraid some of us just go willy-nilly into whatever the sewage, the moral sewage pipe is pumping in, and we just let it, you know, we just, listen, man, our kids are being exposed to some of the wick, most wicked stuff. I, I can't even, they talk about it in class, at Kingwood, you know, they're talking about the stuff they watch and they, I'm like, are you kidding me? Your parents like, yeah, man, they don't know, I'm in my room, I'm in my room. I got internet hooked up in my room, man. I just watch what. It, come on, y'all. Parents, would you please wake up? Please. If you're not monitoring what your kids are watching, you're not a good parent. Straight out. Straight out. I need some backup somewhere. Thank you. I'm telling you, if you do not monitor what is being put in your child's mind, you are not being a good parent. I'm being as straight as I can be. And it's harsh, and I'm stepping on toes, and I know it, but that's because I love you, and I want what's best for you, and I know God does too. Garbage in, garbage out. What you feed grows. You want to feed lust, go ahead and feed it, but you're going you're to pay the consequences for it. We need to avoid anything and everything that causes lust to grow in our hearts. That means... There may be some TV programs we can't watch anymore. There may be some magazines and books we can't read anymore. There may be some music we can't listen to and some places we can't go and some people we can't ever talk to again. I don't know, who, I don't know what those magazines or TV shows are for you. I don't know who those people might be. I know who they are for me. And I know who they are for my family. You've got to make some decisions and some, some commitments because this culture is just pouring its moral filth into your head. I don't want you acting on it, because then i got to help you pick the pieces up, and that wears me down. You're bringing me down, man. Kidding, man. God loves you so much. God loves you so much. Listen, 2 Timothy 2.22 puts it this way. Run! <laughs> I love that. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Follow anything that makes you want to do right. Pursue faith and love and peace and enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Now listen, that's a word for old folks like me and young folks like you alike. Run from youthful lust. Follow hard after good things in your life, good influences in your life. Avoid lust-producing situations. Whatever. That, matter of fact, I'll tell you what I want you to do. If you've got a notebook right now, if you're taking notes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to... Write down one lust-producing situation in your life. You know it's coming. It might be a person, might be a TV show, might be a book, might be a movie. I don't know. I just want you right now, jot it down. I can't do this anymore. That's just, I can't go there anymore. can't do that anymore. Second, we have to avoid provoking lust in others. I am responsible for your spiritual well-being, and you are responsible for mine. I am my brother's keeper, and you are your brother's keeper. 
Don't like that. I don't like that all the time, but that's certainly what the Bible teaches. I can point out verse after verse after verse that says we are each responsible for one another. And we must avoid provoking lust in others. 1 Corinthians 10.32 says, Do not cause anyone to stumble. Say that with me. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. And the assemblies of God. Jesus, I'm sorry. And the Baptists, and the Methodists, and Lutheran, and Catholics. And Jesus says in Matthew 9.42, And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Think Jesus is pretty serious about that? We're responsible for one another. And listen, there are some, listen to me, Christian sisters, all my sisters in Christ out there, listen up. There are some Christian sisters who don't help their Christian brothers out by the way they dress. Low-cut dresses and high hemlines, I tell you what, it can get a brother in trouble. Take his thoughts places he didn't want to go. Oh, that never happened around here. <laughs> Makes me want to cry, because it already has. Christian brothers, listen to me. Please listen to me, Christian brothers. There are some Christian brothers who don't help their Christian sisters by the way they talk. Flirting, touching, making promises they have no intention to fulfill, man, that can cause your sister to stumble. Take her places she doesn't need to go in her thoughts and heart. Listen. Oh, that never happened here. It already has. It already has. And we've had to deal with some of that. And it's been awful. I have seen more people stumble spiritually, in this area, than any other since I've been pastor here for 15 years. It never happened here. It happens all the time. And I don't like having to pick up the pieces. I don't like having to sit down with children and explain to them what's going on between their mom and dad. I don't like to see the outcome of it. I don't like to see people go back into their addiction when God has so miraculously set them free. We've got to avoid provoking lust in others. Listen, sometimes we lead one another on and we don't even realize it because it's become such a part of this culture that we're in. I mean, listen, I, I, I have been in the regular workforce. I worked at Shelby County Courthouse, okay, for four and a half years. You want to know about flirting and touching and... <laughs> Oh, I could tell you some stories. I was a student at the University of Alabama and saw professors hitting on co-eds all the time. And uh, this culture is eating up with it. We think it's the normal course of events. We think that this is the way men and women are supposed to interact. And I'm telling you, no, it's not. No, it's not. We are not to stir up lust in our brothers and sisters. We are not to provoke them to do something outside the will of God. Instead, we should guard them with everything we've got. We should put a guard over our mouth to keep us from making promises we don't intend to keep, saying things we shouldn't be saying, and we need to 
modestly clothe ourselves and conduct ourselves in humility and modesty to the glory of God. Sometimes we lead others on. Sometimes we create desires in other people that cannot be fulfilled in righteous ways. Sometimes we stir up thoughts and emotions that, that shouldn't exist. Listen, let me tell you, we're responsible for one another. We have to avoid provoking lust in other people. Got to. Got to. That's who we're called to be. We're called to represent Jesus. I'm not sure Jesus flirted with Mary Magdalene. They want to tell us that they were married and they had, no, no, that's nonsense. I don't read in the Gospels Jesus flirting with women. You know what I'm saying? Sean. So let's follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. Third, I'm sorry, I'm getting off on this because I've I've been through mm -hmm, too much. We must purposely choose purity. We must purposely choose purity. Psalm 86 says this, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Grant me purity of heart that I may honor you. Paul wrote in Romans 16, 19, noticing, notice I'm bringing in a lot of New Testament verses here just to reinforce what I'm trying to say. Romans 16, 19 says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Listen, we may live in a culture that openly embraces moral and sexual impurity, but that doesn't mean we have to live that way too. When I think of a person who lived a pure life in an impure world, I can't help but think of an Old Testament character named Joseph. I encourage you to go home and read his story. Genesis 35-50 through tells us the story about Joseph and what a tremendous man of God he was. Genesis 39 tells us that Joseph was being openly seduced by his boss's beautiful wife. And Joseph had every reason to give in to the temptation if he wanted to. He was young, he was attractive, he was virile, he was living in a country where that sort of behavior was perfectly permissible. He was even encouraged to do it by other people he worked with. And and more, more, more than that, he was probably lonely, he was probably struggling with rejection. After all, his own family had sold him into slavery, and he was deprived of love. He was all by himself in this foreign world. Nobody was there to hold him accountable to the laws of God. He was there on his own. And here this beautiful rich woman keeps throwing herself at Joseph, saying, I want you, baby, I want you. Come on, sleep with me. Well, instead of giving in to adultery, Joseph looks at her and he says this, I will not sin against God. All sin is against God. Yes, you're sinning against that person. He would have been sinning against that husband. He would even have been sinning against that woman. But that wasn't Joseph's primary concern. Joseph's primary concern is this, I will not sin against God. He purposely chose purity. Then Joseph turned, and what did he do? Ran! (laughs) You ever get get the idea? It's okay to run from temptation, guys. It's okay to turn tail and run from temptation. Running away from temptation is a perfectly legitimate response, okay? So go ahead and do it. Feel free. I to, we, we told our kids when, when they were growing up, when they would go out with friends, if you're ever put in a compromising position, 
You're in a place you don't want to be or around people you don't want to be with. All you got to do is look at them and tell them, my dad's going to kill me if he finds me here. And at that point, they were encouraged to pick up the phone and call mom and dad, and we'd come pick them up wherever that happened to be. The one place I, I told them that I would never pick them up from is jail. I said, oh, don't, don't do bail. But they had the right to, to get us. We would have come. If they were trying to run away from temptation, I was going to be their getaway car. You know what I mean? We have to purposely choose purity. Uh, Psalm 119.11 says this, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. It's the word that gives us our standard for purity. It's the word of God that gives us the standard for purity. It's not our friends. It's not this culture we live in. It's not what Hollywood tells us. We see how pure they are. It's the word that gives us our standards for living. And adultery for us as followers of Christ is never an option. We have to purposely choose purity. And you will have to be purposeful about it in this culture. Fourth part of this remedy. If you want to nip this process in the bud of falling into adultery and and, and going down a road you don't want to go, the fourth part of this remedy is this. We have to admit our struggles to other brothers and sisters. Admit our struggles to other brothers. You know, we need one another. We need one another. I need to have brothers in my life that I can look to and say, man, I am, I'm stumbling here. You have got to help me with this. We have to be able to admit the struggles that we're facing to other brothers and sisters. Proverbs 27, 17 says, and Bill already mentioned it earlier in the service, as iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. Trusted friends can keep us from drifting down the wrong path. Ecclesiastes 4.10 says, If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. One of the greatest pitfalls for ministers is they have no one around them. They don't have an accountability group that looks at them and holds, holds their feet to the fire and asks them the tough questions. And I'm so grateful I've got guys here in this church that will do that for me. I've known too many of my other friends who didn't have the support system that I have, and I can't tell these guys enough how glad I am they're in my life. And I encourage you to do the same thing. Find a friend, find a small group of friends that you can trust and ask them, hold me accountable. Will you please hold me accountable? Find a group of friends who will ask you some hard questions and hold your feet to the fire. Friends who will pray with you and pray for you. You see, the worst thing about lust is this. This is the worst thing about lust, and we see it. I can always tell. I better stop. The worst thing about lust is this is that it makes people live in the shadows. If you're caught up struggling with lust, it makes you want to isolate and withdraw and pull back because you want to be by yourself. You don't want anybody else to know, so you live in the shadows. If you're struggling with pornography, you're living in the shadows. You don't want to come out. You don't want anybody to see what's on that screen. You don't want people to know what you've been looking at. You're in the shadows. The thing is, if you're struggling with lust, you need to come out of the shadows and into the light. Because it's in the light where God can begin to heal your heart and expose what's going on. It's in the light that you can be held accountable. 
Lust wants you to hide. God is calling you into the light. And when we share our struggles with trusted friends, when we bring these struggles with lust out into the light of God's love and truth, lust is going to hit the road. Lust can't dwell in the light. Darkness cannot live in the light. You get that? Darkness cannot live in the light. Bring it out. Put it on the table. Say, this is my struggle, and you'll be amazed at how empowered you feel the moment you confess it. And say, here it is. Help me with it. There's power in that. There's power in surrender in the Christian life. That's where your power comes from. It's by surrendering everything to the Lord. Let me bring it to a close. We're going to have a time of prayer in just a minute. And no, I'm not going to you know, encourage you to, you know, in front of everybody to talk about all the adultery you've been committing over the last week. I'm not asking you to do that. But I do know this. I do know this. Listen to me. Listen, listen real carefully. That, the altar call is not going to be about that. The altar call is going to be about all of us who have been touched with the damage and the devastation that adultery brings. You may still be struggling with it, but I know you're carrying, if you are, you're carrying this huge burden of guilt and shame because that also comes with it. But there are people in this room who grew up in homes where their father continued to cheat on their mother. And you're still weighed down by that. It cut you deeply. But I want you to know, God wants to heal you and set you free. You don't have to live with those memories anymore. They don't have to weigh your heart down. That's not who you are. That doesn't define you. I want you to walk into the freedom that God created you to walk in and live in. And there are other people here, you've been in marriages where your spouse was unfaithful to you. And you're still struggling from the wounds of it. Your self-worth has been trash, and I want you to understand, wait. Oh, man, you've got a God who loves you, and that love never runs out. And he wants to build you back up, and he wants you to know that there is no person on the earth more important than you. And your identity is found in him and what he says, not in what that other man may have said to you as he trashed you and walked away from you. It's about what God says to you. He's your bridegroom. He is faithful. That's what the altar call is going to be about. If you happen to be struggling because you're caught up in adultery, well, there's freedom. You don't have to, you don't have to, no. You don't have to keep going down that road. You shall not commit adultery. That's such a clear command with such powerful import. You shall not commit adultery. Listen, to those here today who feel unclean, you feel dirty, you feel guilt and shame because lust already has its grip around your heart and mind. I want you to know today there's hope and there is freedom and there is forgiveness for you in Christ Jesus. All the Lord asks you to do today if you are tired of carrying that weight around is to bring it out into the open and lay it before Him. He loves you. And His grace is here to help you leave this place a free man, a free woman, free from the guilt and shame of that of that lust that's, that's, that's consumed your heart and mind. Listen. 
God can forgive an adulterer. God has forgiven an adulterer. There are people in this room who have committed adultery, not just in their hearts, but physically as well. And God has set them free. And they are living a new life with a new purpose, new direction. And what was in the past is gone. It no longer has its hold on them. What He's done for them, He'll do for you. Listen, 1 John 1 says this, if we confess our sins, that is if we bring our sins out into the light and agree with God about what they are. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I want you to know what David wrote in Psalm 51, one of my favorite psalms, and you ought to go and read that this afternoon too if you're struggling to put the past behind you if you want to know the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus. Go to Psalm 51. David wrote Psalm 51 after the Holy Spirit convicted him of his adultery and all that sordidness that came with that affair. David cried out to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. David recognized his sin and just like 1 John 1 says, he confessed his failures to the Lord. And then David says, after he has poured out his heart to God, asking for God's forgiveness and help and mercy, he says this, and I love it. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Now God, create in me a pure heart. God, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Give me a pure heart. Help me to remain steadfast to you. I don't know, but I got a feeling there are people in this room. That's the cry of your heart today. You want a pure heart. And you want God to renew a steadfast, faithful spirit in you again. And I am here to tell you, He will do it. He will do it. If you will ask. If your life has in any way been touched with the pain and the devastation associated with adultery, and you want healing for your life, for your heart, for your self-image, if you want to walk free, the shame and guilt into a place of freedom and forgiveness. Right now the altars are open. We're going to worship the Lord. And I want you to come and just lay all that pain before the Lord. All that shame before the Lord. All that destruction and devastation and death. Lay it before the Lord and say, God, here I am in my brokenness. Give me a pure heart. Give me a steadfast spirit. Cleanse me. Make me whole. Make me new. This is your moment. This is your moment. This is your moment. God waits on your response. As we worship the Lord, the altars are open. There will be people who will come to pray with you, but we're not going to be nosy. We're not going to ask you what you're praying about. We're just simply going to place our hands on your shoulders and we're going to pray with you that God does a supernatural healing work in your life, restores your sense of well-being, your sense of identity, your sense of wholeness. That's what we're praying for today. We're trusting God to do it.